Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are going to be looking at the passage Paul read for us the, this morning. The passage that a greater Paul wrote for us, the Apostle. If I were to summarize what the Apostle Paul has been saying in these verses that we looked at the last two weeks, that would be verses 6 through 8, it would be, you have no idea how much God loves you. God's love that has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit is beyond human comprehension. There are no earthly equals, I think that's what he's been saying. There are no, there's no mortal mind that can conjure a parallel. The, the best that we can do falls short. It, it is so otherworldly that it must be explained to us in the Bible, and that's what Paul's been doing the last three glorious verses. He said it in verse 6, we can catch a glimpse of it by looking at the objects that, that it's poured out on. Uh, it's expressed toward the undeserving. The love of God is expressed toward undeserving people, and not just undeserving as in passively can't do anything or undeserving as in didn't earn it, but, but actively sinful, ungodly people who are God's enemies, the, the kind that deserve just the opposite of, of His love. He said in verse 7 that don't bother looking at human love to understand it any better because it's unlike any earthly, uh, earthly love we've ever experienced or, or can conceive. Uh, a... Uh, a Marine risking his life or his brother on the battlefield is honorable and noteworthy, but it's insufficient. Uh, a, a mother offering her health for her child is, is honorable. It's, it, it's what any mother should do, but that's not enough. I mean, the highest form of love that, that you can conceive, God's love, is higher still. It's higher than the most righteous death a human being uh, as ever performed. It's greater than the most sacrificial death that a man or woman has ever made. He, and he said, if you really want to see it, look at the cross. God's love is demonstrated by the cross of Jesus Christ in, in, in verse 8. His death for his enemies proves it. That's a love that we can barely comprehend without the, the Spirit's help. And you have no idea how much God's love you, uh, God loves you. But you also have no idea how secure you are in, in Him either, which is what He's going to show us next in verses 9 and, and 10. God has poured out this justifying love on you in His Son, and at the moment of faith, the moment that you express faith and you trust in that, in that work of Christ, you are instantly and unchangingly, eternally secure. And you have no idea how secure you are. As much as you were in danger of wrath as God's enemy, you are now that safe and, and then some as, as God's friend. That's going to be his argument, his point in verses 9 and, and 10. That sounds pretty encouraging, doesn't it? it it's meant to be. This is the fourth series of blessings described in this new section that runs from Romans chapter 5 to, to Romans 8, which begins with the words, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. And, 
And from there, Paul starts a list of what we have gained and, or what has changed now that we've been declared right with, with God. If you find yourself uh, prior to this verse in chapters 1 and 2 and, and part of chapter 3, meaning, meaning that you have not trusted in Christ yet, then, then what you're hearing and, and what you, you'll, you'll be reading is, is only what's possible for you. And, and you, you should be concerned because you're still in your sins. But if you've come to Jesus Christ by faith alone and you're trusting in His death on the cross, then, then you have absolutely nothing to fear. And Paul will show you why you have nothing to fear today. I mean, which is the primary purpose of him describing all of these, all of these blessings. I mean, just as hard as he mashed the accelerator down and, and turned the volume up on the megaphone of the wrath of God that's coming on sinners and that there's none righteous, no, not one, he, he does just the same on the other side of the coin about our assurances. And there are no two verses like this passage that, that highlight our security. I mean, in verse 5, Paul told us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, and then he defined that love for us in verses 6 through 8. I mean, he knows that once you understand the love that God has for his people, it will be impossible for you to doubt that love. So in verse 6 through 8, he gave us an exposition of the, of the love of God, what it's like, how it's expressed, how it's compared to other kinds of love that, that we know. And, and now with that, in the rearview mirror, Paul calls us to look at the front windshield of the car to another reassuring fact. Verses 9 and 10, he'll show us the, the future result of our justification or the result of it in the future. I mean, he argues it for us in a very methodical form of sanctified logic that I'll walk you through. He he says, look out beyond the hood, beyond the pavement immediately in front of you to the long winding road that stretches into heaven all the way to the bar of God, all the way to the coming judgment. And as far as you can see, and even up to that point, you are secure. Paul says, because of what took place when you got in the car at justification, that declaration that you received that you are right before God that will carry you all the way to your destination. You don't need to stop for gas. You have a, an EV battery that never runs out. It'll take you all the way to the great white throne and beyond. Paul's been speaking of hope in, in verse 5. You remember that's the theme that started this whole section. He said we have hope, and that hope will not be put to shame. You, you trust in what God says in His Word for, for salvation, and, and it won't turn up empty in the end. You won't, you won't be ashamed. It's, and yet there's one thing that could destroy that, that hope, and, and that's, that's God's coming wrath. You have hope right now, but there's still something coming in the future. I mean, the judgment of God is out there in the future. And so Paul mentions the, the hope of glory, the, the hope that we have of glorification. We might be tempted to think with all of the blessings and the benefits that we have right now, I mean, it, it, is that enough? I mean, I have the love of God. I, I can see it on the cross. The Holy Spirit is present with me. But I'm still worried about what may happen when I stand before Him. I mean, will God continue to love me then, just like He says He loves me now? I mean, when the books are opened and my deeds are, 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 are read from those, those books. I mean, Paul's argument is, really, is your Christianity enough to die with? 
We all don't like to think about that reality, but it's, it's, part, of, it's part of life. Or is your Christianity a, a form that's just good enough for the earth? I mean, does it bring you solace and purpose here and now, but, but not whenever you face God? That, that's not much of a, of a comfort. I mean, there are many people who actually get comfort in religion. They, they like the ritual. They like coming and doing whatever it is that's prescribed of them, and that salves their, their conscience, and, and then they're able to go through the rest of the day and, and even life. But, but what good is it if your faith won't withstand the day whenever you face God? I mean, it's no good at all. And Paul says uh, of the faith that he speaks about here in the book of Romans, even when you pass the road signs that say God's wrath 35 years ahead or whenever it is, you have no reason to fear. That's a destination for people who are not justified by faith because you've been reconciled to God in Christ. I mean, have you ever wondered maybe some years after you, you were saved um, if, if what you got was good enough. And I can remember being zealous after coming to Christ, being, uh, coming out of a, a very pagan background and, and lifestyle, having old-timers say in the church, oh, and when, when he got saved, he got a double dose. Have you ever heard that phrase? I didn't get a double dose. I got a real dose. But there's no such thing as a double dose. And Paul says if, if you got the real dose then it'll carry you all the way through. Maybe I, I get I was, I was forgiven by faith, but, but I wonder if that will last. Or, or maybe if there's something more that, that, that you need, like a second blessing or, or, a, or a higher plane. I need to reach some higher spiritual plane. And I mean, did you receive enough of it? I mean, that's what some errant religions teach, that you have to have some second work. You ever thought... It, Maybe something like this before. I mean, what, what, what if I sin? There's a lot that can happen between now and the time I face God. I mean, the sins I've committed, doubts I may face, discouragements uh, that, that I will, will still weather. I mean, what about that verse that says, He that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. I don't, I don't endure very well. How can I know He'll still forgive me then whenever I see Him? Living like that resembles a, a person who was found not guilty in a, in a trial and, but then wonders the next time they get, they get pulled over, is that still on the record? Now, if you've ever been part of Catholicism or, or been to a, a youth campfire service, sadly, you really don't know whether, how it's going to turn out in, in, in the end. I mean, the, the week that we're... Uh, what, what we're celebrating here in a week, Reformation Day, and the protest, protestants, Protestants, that the protest that commemorates that, that day is bound up in the verses that are before you. I mean, am I declared righteous by God, declared righteous, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, because of God's grace alone, and, and the basis of which is in the Scriptures alone, and it for God's glory alone, is, is, is that true? Or does my faith or baptism or walking an aisle start a process where I become righteous by God's help and my effort? And if I'm cooperating, then, then I'm, have I cooperated enough? Do I need to cooperate a little bit more? 
And that's a system that says, I'm secure as long as I participate, as long as I participate in the sacraments or confession or, or whatever it is. And each time I do that, I add a little measure of righteousness to, to my account, but I have to wait until I stand before God to, to know, the, know the verdict. I mean, there's no security in that. It's only a life of worry, and, and sadly, even that won't gain you anything in the end. If your security is not in Jesus Christ, you have no security at all. Well, Paul says here's the answer in verses 6 through 8. It's an answer from logic, and it's an answer from greater to to, to the lesser. Verses 9 and 10, I mean. He says, you have no idea how secure you really are if you've come by faith alone. If you're trusting in religion or your effort to, to help God, you're as exposed as a hospital gown. I mean, you're, you're wide open. But having been declared righteous by God through faith, you're wearing the robes of righteousness that have an eternal thread count. You couldn't be more covered. Because compared to what God has already done for you in Christ, keeping you is a lesser matter. And that's what he's going to argue. I mean, if Jesus died for you while you were still in your sin, that's a greater thing than keeping you secure once you're saved, isn't it? I mean, if he reconciled you while you were a hostile enemy, that's way more serious than safeguarding you as a friend. That's Paul's argument that, that, that he's about to make. I mean, if God has already done the most difficult thing in the universe, which is to reconcile a holy God to ungodly sinners and justify them, then, then how much more can we trust him to accomplish a much easier thing, which is to to save a forgiven righteous friend from wrath on the last day. And the key to all of that, once again, begins in in, in verse 1. Having been justified, meaning it's something that's already happened. He's already shown us, because of that reality, the reality that we have been justified before God, declared righteous by God, even though we're not, not based on anything in us, but an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness of Christ alone, His worth, His work, His holiness, His keeping of the law. That righteousness is is credited to our account, and we're, we're declared righteous on that basis. And therefore, we stand just before God, even though we're unrighteous. And God then treats us as as just, because that's already a reality for believers We have peace with God in verse 1. We have hope in Christ and in the life as it comes at us in verses 2 through 4. And we have the Holy Spirit in verse 5. We're loved by God in inexplicable ways in verses 6 and 7. And that love was tangibly demonstrated on the cross where our Lord died for us in verse 8. And now in verses 9 and 10, He says, If all those things are true, then He will surely keep us from wrath and receive us into heaven. I mean, God doesn't just deliver us from sin and judgment. He also delivers us from doubt in these two passages. Because Paul gives two logical arguments about eternal security. Verses 9 and 10. I hesitate to use the words eternal security because then that just means whatever you believe it is. So you need to pay attention to how the Bible defines it, not what, what your idea uh, of it is. But, but those are the best words for what Paul's saying here. He gives two logical arguments. In the first one, he, he says justified sinners are certain saints. 
in verse 9. And he also says reconciled enemies are secured friends in verse 10. Or to say it another way, if you have been saved, then you will surely be kept. And if you were reconciled as an enemy, then you will surely be secured as a friend. Let's look at the first one. That's all we'll get through today. Justified sinners are certain saints. That's the first logical argument about eternal security that he makes. Look, if you would, at verse 9. He says, Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And, and in this verse, Paul gives the reality of our justification, having now been justified. He gives us the means of our justification by His blood... And then he gives the result of our justification. We shall be saved, that is, in the future, and saved specifically from wrath. And, and his point is it brings us even more than what we've already considered in the, in the verses up to, up to this point. I mean, verse 9 is actually a conclusion. It's a continuation. Continuation of what he just got done saying in verses 6 through 8, and here's the conclusion. I mean, since God's love has been demonstrated by the death of Christ... While we were helpless sinners, ungodly enemies, then God surely won't pour out His wrath on us when we stand before Him. It's His conclusion. So Paul now provides the result of the love of God. He says it's demonstrated in the cross or on the cross in verse 8, and its ongoing result is eternal security in verse 9. And that includes this joyful reconciliation and fellowship with, with God in verses 10 and, 11. And, and his argument is very logical. It, it goes from greater to lesser. Follow this argument in, in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. Having now been justified by his blood, that, that's the greater, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That, that's the lesser or easier thing. And the much more than provides the logical comparison between the two. I mean, Paul is using a method of logic, of reasoning, that, that he, he, he applies four times here in, in Romans chapter 5. I mean, twice in these verses, verse 9, much more than having been, and in verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more. But, but look down at verse 15. He, he does it again. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one uh, of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift uh, uh, by the, the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to many. And drop down just two verses in verse 17. He, he does it again. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I mean, his point is, if the first is factual, and it is, then you should have no difficulty whatsoever believing the second, because it undoubtedly is true as well. In verses 9 and 10, he's saying, if the greater is true... And it is that you've been justified by the blood of Christ, then, then the lesser by necessity must also be true as well. You will be saved from the, from the wrath that, that, that's coming. 
I mean, the great apostle is, is, is doing what he's done many times before. He's, he's reasoning with you. I mean, he's using sound logic to, to do it. I mean, the book of Acts tells us that this is Paul's regular routine. He was a, he was a logical preacher. You ever sat under, under a yeller or, or somebody that, that after they get done preaching, you know, somebody looks at you, I mean, you're just so fired up, and they look at you and say, man, that was good preaching. Uh, what did he say? I have no idea, but that was really good preaching. That's not the way that the Apostle Paul preached, nor is it the way that you should. Paul would enter the synagogues, and he would give sound reason from the Bible to them that, that they might believe. Look, look at Acts 17. This describes Paul's regular methodology, which is what he employs right here in Romans and what he employs in all of his letters. Acts 17 too. And according to Paul's custom, notice it's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ who had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. There's his preaching. Three weeks, proclaiming Jesus from the Scriptures, reasoning and giving evidence, which is exactly what he does in Colossians or Ephesians or wherever else it is. It's, it's full of doctrine, it's logically reasoned, and then he even applies it. Therefore, because all of this is true, therefore live this way. I mean, Paul doesn't want your faith hanging by the thread of your experience or twisting in the wind of your emotions, which, which, which blow from day to day. He wants it anchored by the steel cable of truth and reason. And, and notice it wasn't even just that Paul was a, you know, was a, was a good omeletician or, or reasoner. I mean, it's not even based on his own logic. I mean, his logic is is rooted in God's declarations. It's rooted in the Scriptures. It's because your Christianity is not based on feelings. It's based on facts. There's some presuppositions that you're accepting for sure, like, like there is a God and, and the Bible is His Word. I mean, you're assuming these, these presuppositions. You're presupposing these things. But everybody does that. I mean, even the atheist has presuppositions. I mean, he presupposes there is no God, and the Bible not, is not the Word. But even your Christian presuppositions have a logical basis to them. I mean, there's empirical evidence that there is a God. I mean, there's the design of the universe, there's the fact that something can't come from nothing, and you learn all of that in apologetics class, and, and that the Bible is a unique book. And your faith is very logical. I mean, if there is a God and the Bible is His Word, I mean, then obeying Him is absolutely reasonable, isn't it? In fact, it's illogical not to. If there's a God, then it's illogical not to pay attention to Him. He's a greater being. I mean, rejecting Him and going to hell is the most illogical thing that you could do if you're presented with the gospel of grace. I mean, don't buy the lie that there's some fake line between faith and reason or, or logic and belief. Like the Bible is, you know, is, is some kind of a fairyland where the, these spiritual stories happen, but real life is out here all around you. I mean, that's not true at all. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons that God chose to intervene in the world in the way in which He did is to, is to prove that, prove the opposite of that. I mean, did you ever think about this, that... 
that God revealed himself. And the Bible says he has to reveal himself to mankind now that the fall has come. And God did that with a specific people in history, the Jews, in a specific land in Israel and recording all of his dealings blow by blow in a specific place in, in the Bible. And that was so that you could read it and so you could examine what it says. You could consider what it says. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. I mean, the Bible invites us to do that. I mean, it's worn out many a, a doubters. I mean, the Bible, when you think about it, is not like any other religious book. I wouldn't advise you to do this, but I mean, if you pick up any other religious book, I mean, it, it, it normally re records bizarre things. I mean, with mystical beings which have no basis of, in anything that we understand. And it's typically interpreted by allegory. But the Bible was written in a real place during a real time, and it calls us to examine it for truth. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors from all walks of life, from farmers to fishermen to musicians to doctors to priests and kings, and yet it's a book that reads like, like it had a single author. And it has one unified theme, God redeeming a people for himself. I mean, we marvel uh, at... Lacking uh, people lacking technology and able to do uh, amazing things. We marvel at, at the, the tunnel workers of old without, without that technology. You know, one starts digging over here and one starts digging over here and they tunnel toward each other and the closer that they get, they hear the, you know, the hammer blows of the other group and then they adjust and then somehow they, they meet in the middle and they, they complete the, the, the tunnel. We say, that's amazing. We, we marvel at that. What about 40 people writing a book over 1,500 years and completing it with perfect unity and clarity without once contradicting each other, without one error, with one unified theme, Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Amen. And the Bible was written to be understood. And it was written to be studied. It has context. It has time. It was written in language that we can understand with grammar and syntax with genres so that we can help interpret it. And its arguments are based on propositional reason and, and, and logic, not mystical experiences. I mean, you might not be able to grasp intellectually some of the things that the Bible says, like, like the eternality of God or, or, or how the Trinity you know, comes together. But it doesn't mean those things are illogical. There's nothing illogical at all about your faith. It's embedded in logic. In fact, Paul shows us here. I mean, his point is an argument based on a common method of proving something. I mean, the rabbis called it light to heavy. And Paul just turns that around and goes from heavy to light. And it goes like this. If God declared you righteous while you're here on earth, he will surely pour, not pour out his wrath when you get to heaven. Verse 9. Pay attention to the time markers here. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. That's, that's past and present. Having now been justified. We shall be saved from wrath. That's future. When God will pour it out on sinners. And it's completely logical. I mean, if the judge has already declared you forgiven and just, 
at the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, then when you stand before Him later, you won't receive a different verdict. Paul's obviously talking about the future here because he uses this term wrath, which, which, which means the day of judgment. It's the great day that, that's coming when God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. And whoever or whatever you think is running around on the, the earth, thumbing their nose in God's face, hiding their sin in the dark, believing somehow they're getting away with it, is sorely mistaken because there's coming a day when God will call the world into, into account. And there's, there's coming a day when the, the righteous judgment of God will be unleashed. And that's what Paul means here by wrath. And, and his question is, will a person who has believed on Jesus now be saved from that day then? I mean, I believed on Jesus here. How can I be sure that will stick when that day comes? That's a pretty terrifying day. Which is why you shouldn't take a topic like eternal security and... And, and treat it lightly. Oh, this is great. I'm secure. I don't have anything to worry about if you don't know that you're saved. And his answer is that the day of judgment has already come for us as believers when Christ stood in our place. That was the day of judgment, the cross. It came at the cross for those who believe and it was realized at the moment of faith and that keeps you until you see God's friendly face. But it's even stronger than that. Look at the basis that that he, he uses to, to assert this truth. I mean, the ground that he lays this reason on is thick. There's nothing thicker than this ground. It's the very blood of Christ. Verse 9, having now been justified by his blood. I mean, this verse is the means of your justification. There, there's the fact of it, having now been justified. That's the fact. But how is that justification secured? It, it, it was Christ's sacrificial death, His shed blood. And then He gives the result of that, that justification. You will be saved from the wrath through, through Him. You want to see how secure you are? Once again, look to the cross. Love? Look at the cross. It was demonstrated there. Security? Look to the cross. It was, it's anchored there. That's where your security is anchored. Your security is based on Him. And your justification is based on His sacrificial death. This statement from Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn said, This world is the closest a believer will ever get to hell, and it's the closest an unbeliever will ever get to heaven. It's a profound statement. Isn't it? It's true. It's what Paul's saying here. This world and what you experience here, which he's already said, gives you hope because your faith is activated in the midst of the trials, is the closest that you'll ever get to hell. And the closest an unbeliever will ever get to heaven is the common grace that's shed on the whole world and all of the other blessings that come on the earth. Notice this verse says much more, though. It, 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 it says much more. I mean, that's a breathtaking statement. Much more than the death of the Son of God. I mean, how do you get much more than that? Rick Holland said when, when you think about what Paul is saying here, it almost feels sacrilegious to say much more. I mean, much more than the death of Christ. I mean, how can you get much more than that? But that's, that's Paul's point. 
The death of Christ is so massive. Therefore, being saved from wrath is obviously lesser than that. And the more are the, are the future benefits that, that come because of the death. And he uses the term blood here, which simply means the, you know, the death of Christ. I mean, we, we don't... Um, we don't commit idolatry toward the fluid uh, that Christ shed on the cross like a Catholic does. But it's, it's a purposeful term here. I mean, he could have just said, you're justified by his death for you. But he chooses the word blood. He says you're justified by his blood because he wants your mind and the mind of the Jewish reader to be taken back to the blood sacrifices that appeased God's wrath in the, in the Mosaic law because... He's talking about a wrath that's coming in the, in the future. And here's the Passover passage in Exodus 12. God told Israel, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, it's the blood that he told them to put on the, their doorposts, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's the Passover passage. And Paul says there's an even greater judgment that's coming in the future. And in that greater judgment coming in the future, when God sees the blood of His Son, He'll pass over His people again. And that blood was applied at the moment of your justification. And it sticks and it stays. Schreiner said it, it, it was to say, using that term was to say, justification was free, but it's not cheap. It was obtained at the cost of, of Christ's blood. Now, you might not have been paying attention to this, and, and I don't blame you if you weren't. I mean, it's my job too, so, so I am. But, but Paul has already said a couple things. He's already said we've been justified by God's grace. Verse 3.24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 28, he says that we've been justified by faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And, and now he says we've been justified by his blood. So, so which is it, Paul? Is it grace? Is it faith? Or is it blood? And, and the answer is it's all three. I mean, Paul's not saying anything different here in this verse that he said before. He's approaching the same destination from a different road. He starts with the grace of God in, in, verse, in verse 24 because... It's what makes justification possible to begin with. I mean, justification wouldn't be possible apart from grace. But then justification comes to us through, through faith. And the author of that faith, or the anchor of that faith, I should say, is the, is the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And they all work together. It's the grace of God that provides any justification at all because we're sinners and unable to please God, which is what he means in verse 24. Without grace, there would be no salvation possible. Grace provides the, the way of, uh, of faith, even the faith that we exercise, but we then exercise faith. 
to be justified, which is what Paul means in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's faith that connects us to the verdict that we need. Faith is face the arms that reach out and receive the, the gift of grace. Faith is the anchor chain that, that goes from our boat to catch upon the sea floor of God's grace. And, and our faith is in something. It has an object. And that object, verse 9 says, is the, the death of Christ, which is the shedding of His blood. This is very careful. I mean, this is very important, so, so listen very carefully. Your faith does not save you. The work of Christ does. I mean, specifically is death, Paul says here. I mean, you can have all the faith that, that, that you want, but if it's not in something that can save you, it's nothing more than sincerity. So, I mean, I understand when we say we're saved by faith alone. We understand what we mean by that. Well, we just mean that faith actually connects us to, 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 the, to the only thing that can save us. But what can save us is the, is the work of Christ, the, the death of Christ. I mean, you just have faith and it's, it's, not, it's not connected to Christ, then, then you just have sincerity. But Paul says, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. I, I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. And you know the refrain. I, I need no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's Paul's logical argument here. It's Christ shed blood on the cross that is the ground of our justification. His holy law and wrath were satisfied there. Without grace as the ship, we, we would just sink under the water. We would just sink into the sea. But faith is the, is the anchor chain that then takes us to the seafloor, and the anchor on the end of that chain is the cross. Of Christ. That's what digs into the rock of God, and that's what can never be moved. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that you, you can think of it this way. What makes justification possible in the sense that God devised it as a means of saving us is the grace of God. I mean, the very idea of justification springs out of grace. That's the beginning of it. But that's not the whole picture. The grace of God comes to us through the channel or the medium of faith. But that still leaves us the, the question of how it has really come to us. I mean, what has dealt with the problem of our guilt and providing righteousness, which we have, and which has come to us by faith? And the answer is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and especially His death on the cross, the shedding of His blood that was poured out. I mean, Jesus says the exact same thing that Paul says here in John 5, 24. Really, I should reverse that. Paul says the exact same thing that Jesus says in John 5, 24. Look at the words of John in 5, 24. The words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed 
from death to life. Look, look, look at how it puts every part of salvation in that one statement, past, present, and, and future. Whoever hears my word and believes him who, who sent me, that's faith, past faith. There's a moment you do that. And notice what a person who believes has. He, he has eternal life right now. That's present. And notice what Jesus adds at the end. He goes all the way to the great white throne itself and, and says the man of justifying faith does not come into the judgment. He does not come into the judgment. That's in the future. It's a future judgment. And then he reminds us of why. Or the, the whole ball of wax. He, he's already passed from, from death to life. That declaration is, is made at the moment of faith. God there at that moment once for all declares us as righteous and then from that point, eternally treats us as righteous. Our eternal security is rooted in justification. Now your mind might go to other places, which the Apostle Paul will deal with later, like, well, what about people who sin? What about people who claim eternal security but then live however they want to? Well, he'll get there in, in chapter 6. He's in chapter 5 right now. In chapter 6, though, he'll say, what shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin that, that grace may increase? I mean, he, he, again, he mashes the accelerator down completely to the floor talking about your security and your assurance. And so he follows up in chapter 6 and says, such an amazing grace. What shall we say? Are, are we to just sin then? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin? He gets theological live in it. I mean, if you think you stand justified before God and you're living a life of increasing sin or you're not putting it to death, think again, is what Paul will say in chapter 6. Paul says, while believers may sin, our hearts cry, may it never be because we've died and now we're alive in God. Things have changed. I mean, genuine believers don't treat the very thing that sent their Savior to the cross lightly. They hate it. They go to war with it. When we fall into it, we, we loathe it. I mean, that's an evidence that you're a believer. And that's what's coming in chapter 6. But here he's concerned with explaining the fruit and the blessing of your, your justification. And one of those blessings is that now, is that you're secure both now and in the final judgment which is exactly what Paul will, will echo in, in chapter 8. Remember how I told you chapter 5 and chapter 8 are like bookends. He just repeats the, the themes that he develops in chapter 8, the chapter we love. Watch how he does this with, with, with these verses in mind. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Justification death of Christ, the charge, the future charges that could possibly come in the judgment. It's God who justifies, so who can condemn? I mean, who can lay anything to charge at God's elect? God's elect already having been declared just, and the answer is no one. And how does Romans 5 say we're justified? We're justified by faith alone. And when does that justification take place? According to chapter 4 and chapter 5, at the very moment of faith. Which means there's no future wrath that, that's coming. I mean, justification brings a finality to things. 
And that finality brings security. And that security brings peace and joy. And that peace and joy frees you for service to the one who saved you. You are set free from dead works to serve the, the living God. You see, having eternal security is vital for your Christian life. It's not so that you can sin and not worry about it, or, 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 or live however you want to live, it's so you can live for Him. It removes all the hindrances. It removes all the doubts that would keep you from giving your life away for Him and for others. I mean, since righteousness is an accomplished reality, as one commentator put it, so will future security and, and escaping God's wrath. Watch how the writer of Hebrews uses this same logical argument and adds the service part. It says, For if the the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, now this, he, he goes to, by, the, by the rabbinical order, from lesser to greater. I mean, he's saying if the old covenant sacrifices cleansed you ceremonially before God, you served God, it cleaned you to serve God, how much more with the blood of Christ, which actually takes away your guilt in your conscience, then free you to be able to give your life away, to serve God. Or I won't, but I could take you to Galatians 5.13, the passage about liberty in Christ. I'm I'm free, free from the Mosaic law. Legalism, legalism, law, it's such a a horrible thing. I'm free from all of that. Have you ever paid attention to why you've been set free or the purpose that you've been set free from all of the ceremony of the Mosaic law? You haven't been freed from law. You've been freed from from all the ceremonial aspects of the, of the law. Galatians 5.13, you, you were called to freedom, brethren. You were called to liberty for sure, but only do not turn your, your liberty or your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And you're free from, from the Mosaic law, not so you can live for your flesh, but you've been freed from all of that, so you'll have nothing to distract you from giving your life away. And you can't serve always looking over your shoulder, fearing, am I right with God or or what is to come? There's no way to live for the Lord. How much hindrance there is if you're always wondering about where you stand. Now, if there's active sin in your life, habitual sin in your life, then you might not have assurance. There's subjective assurance, the feeling of it, and then there's objective assurance. But if you're in sin, you shouldn't have any assurance. But if you're laying that at the foot of the cross and battling it, then you look to the cross. MacArthur said it this way, How can a Christian whose past and future salvation are secured by God be insecure during the time between? That's a good question. I mean, if a dying Savior reconciled us to God, surely a living Savior can keep us reconciled. 
It's a greater work to bring sinners to grace than it is to bring saints to glory. And while we're waiting, we're free. And while we're free, we're free to serve. And all of your security is in the Son who shed His blood and the God who justified you whenever you believed upon Him. Let me pray. Father, I am so thankful that faith is is based, rooted in logic and reason and truth. I'm so thankful that you've given us a Bible to, to look to and that you, you tell us to examine it and understand it, to see what it says and whether it be true. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that, that in it you, you tell us very clearly who we are and very clearly what you've done and even the results of that. And so I pray, even this morning, maybe for a Christian that's, that's discouraged, maybe weak, um, that, that you would just grab hold of them and anchor them to this truth, that, that they would go back to the Scriptures. If they lack faith, faith comes by hearing. Faith is built by reading the, the Scriptures, so they would go there and that you would build it as, as they read it. I, I pray if there's any Christian here, Lord, that is in sin, they're dabbling, they're violating their conscience in some, in some way, that, that they would stop. They'll not get a clean conscience by, by continually doing those types of things over and over. And then you would free them, and you would free all of us to be able to give our lives completely to you. And I also pray, Lord, for, for anyone who's outside of Christ. Someone has never tasted what it feels like to be justified, to be clean, to be free. Um, would you do that for them even today as they hear about your son and what you've done? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.